Hi there, I'm Jake Humphrey and this is High Performance, our conversation for you every single week. This is the podcast that reminds you that it's within your ambition, your dreams, your purpose. They're all within. All we do is help you unlock it by speaking to the greatest leaders on the planet so you can learn their life lessons. Alongside me, as always, for this conversation, Professor Damien Hughes. And today we speak to one of the leaders in Formula One. I mean, he came in having won seven Grand Prix and was, you know, the hottest driver that you you could get. And I think uh, we kind of maybe assumed, and I think kind of rightfully so, that he was going to pick up where he left off. I don't think we could have done something differently to make him more competitive. We, We tried all that. We just weren't able to unlock it together. And Lando's, you know, driving great and getting the car to perform. So I don't think there's anything sitting here that we would have done differently or could have seen. You know, I think likability when you're working as hard as we're all working, because the leadership team that I have has the same work ethic as I do. So when you're working seven days a week, all hours of the day, you got to like who you're working with. So likability has always been very important. Would I do the same thing again? No, I I would make those adjustments because I think I could land in the same place. But that's easy to say in hindsight. And my sons have seen this, and I think they've advised me to slow down at times. So I think hopefully while they've got great work ethic, they've seen the downside, if you'd like, of having uh, work be too intense. And I think they won't want to repeat that. There's two types of successful people, those that uh, are the pursuit of victory and those that are the fear of failure. And I'm the fear of failure. So yeah, we welcome Zach Brown to the High Performance Podcast. Um, and look, Damien, um, it was this was recorded shortly after they made a really big announcement about the fact that Daniel Ricciardo, who is a really popular driver for McLaren, is going to leave the team. And we talk about that during this podcast. And I think that, you know, when we look at what's happened with Daniel and McLaren, we need to really employ empathy over opinion here. You know, it's easy to be critical of all parties, but actually what we need to do is understand that whether it's Zach, whether it's the people working for the team or whether it's Daniel, everyone wanted the same thing here, which is race wins and success and to sort of go on this amazing journey together. And that sometimes it just doesn't work out like that. Yeah. And I think people that are going to listen to this will find Uh, some real insights into the culture here at McLaren. I think that often when people leave a business, it's a real good indicator of the kind of organisation that it is. Do they treat people with respect and dignity? Do they give them due credit? And I think people listening to this will see that they're all hallmarks of the organisation that Daniel has been employed by. And let's just paint a picture for people. We're sitting in one of the really beautiful conference rooms here at the McLaren Technology Centre. Zach left the room just a couple of minutes ago. I mean, he came in and it was like a firework going off. And the energy that he brought to the room, I thought was really interesting because I I think sometimes we interview people and the energy's not that great. And then suddenly we start the interview and they say all the right things and they sort of, they clearly have thought a lot about the interview we're going to have. But actually the energy that Zach brought was really open, really honest. I think people are going to, understand a lot more about not just McLaren, but about Zach Brown as well from the next hour. Yep. 
you know, there's that old saying that some people light up a room when they walk into it and some people light up a room when they walk out of it. Uh, he's definitely somebody that lit it up when he came in, just with that purposeful energy. There wasn't a wasted word. There wasn't uh, a moment that he wasn't prepared to just come, engage, listen, and give us some really candid, honest, open answers. All right, well, let's get to it then. And for those of you that don't know the full story, Zach Brown grew up in the United States. He was obsessed with motor racing, but there was a moment where he had to come to the painful realisation that he was not going to be the next Formula One superstar out of the States. However, he turned that into a positive. He used the contacts that he'd built up in his time as a racing driver. He created Just Marketing International. He then built that up into a multi, multi-million pound business. He's been involved in Formula One for years. And you know what he says in the interview? He just says, you know, I always wanted to be a racing driver for McLaren. And I ended up as the boss. And I don't think it's a bad message for people that sometimes you have to take a different route. Sometimes things don't feel like they're working out. But you know what? With self-belief, determination, and as you're about to hear, loads and loads of hard work, you can end up in that place where you really want to be. So let's do it then. They've generated some huge headlines over the past 24 hours in the world of Formula One. But let's get the truth behind the team and his thoughts on the departure of Daniel Ricciardo. Here is Zach Brown on the High Performance Podcast. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Zach, thank you very much for joining us, first of all. My pleasure. What does high performance mean to you? High performance, it means a lot of things to me. Um, Energy. uh, Results. Uh, being very self-critical, um, always striving for perfection, but never quite getting there. Okay, let's talk about the self-critical element of all of those things, because being kind to yourself is an important part of high performance as well. I wonder whether this is something that you can trace right back to the beginning, really, when you were an aspiring racing driver and the fact that you maybe had to be hard on yourself to get to where you wanted to get to, full of dreams, full of ambition. Yeah, I found uh, blaming other people doesn't really fix anything. So I've I've always felt, uh, whether it's through my racing career or my business career, you need to be critical of yourself because you're in control of everything, even when things maybe but might be out of your control, but you control how you how you handle it. So I've always gone through life figuring out I need to do stuff better. To achieve, and if you kind of don't own it, then how do you ever fix it or improve? So I'll walk away from today, and I'll 
watch this when it airs and I'll go, oh, I wish I would have said that a little bit different, or I wish I would have said that differently in that strive for perfection and always improving. Um, and that's kind of how I run, uh, run my life. So when did you discover this then? We talk often about fault versus responsibility. Yeah. Loads of things in your life are not your fault, but they're your responsibility. If you have that mindset, you can then deal with them. When did you first? I, I think from day, day one, because I never had the resources to either start a company or racing crew. So I always had to get it yeah. from uh, elsewhere. And so I think I learned early on, what do I need to do to get what I want out of someone else to sponsor me or be a customer or a client, whatever the case may be. So I always kind of focused on what do I need to do to get others to do what I want them to do, to give me what I need so I can go do what I want to do. So I think I learned early on nothing was going to be kind of gifted to me or I wasn't fortunate to have things, you know, we were middle-class family, so I wasn't, I didn't grow up poor, but, you know, I did have food provided to me, but I, you know, as far as racing goes, I, we didn't have that type of uh, wealth and, and therefore learned early on, I had to go get it. And that was all about what do I need to do to go get it. So what about the role of your parents in this sense out? Because it, that sounds like that, that that kind of mindset was nurtured and encouraged. So would you tell us a little bit about their role? Yeah, I think they had a a big part to to play. Uh, my dad's a, a musician and, and music arranger, and uh, my earliest memories were he just was locked in his room working. So he was a, a workaholic and very passionate about what he did. And so uh, early on, it was like, well, dad's got a kind of a cool job and looks like it's not a job because he's not kind of checking in anywhere. So I think I got work ethic from him and, and kind of passion. And then my mom uh, was and is a, a self-employed travel agent. She's quite a, a networker, extroverted, going in and pulling in customers and clients and did that through relationships. So she was really good at you know what I call relationship marketing. And I think I got that side from her because that's a lot of, you know, if I look at what I do, I I love what I do. It doesn't feel like a job. I'm a workaholic, but a lot of my work is about relationships. So I think if I look at what my mom and dad did, which was totally different, it's kind of a blend of what I saw that I think I do today. And what about the kind of advice that they offered you? Is there any that stands out that you still use today? They didn't really give me advice. I think I more watched what they did as opposed to them. You know, my dad didn't talk to me about work ethic. I just saw yeah. what he did. Um, I saw how hard my mom worked. So it was, I never got kind of the speech of, you know, work hard or do this. It was more, I watched them operate. But you must have found a way to live with ambition and desire and a belief that you can do great things because it's not the norm to go and want to be a racing driver and go out and make it happen when you haven't got millions of pounds from your dad to fund that career. And then equally when that came to an end and we can talk about what that moment was like when it, you weren't going to become the next superstar US Formula One driver, then you pivoted into business. And again, you must have had loads of ambition to make the business as successful as you did. So do you remember when that ambition first was sort of burning inside you to be better and how you channeled it? Yeah, I think um, very early on back to, to 
baseball. Baseball is what I wanted. I wanted to be a baseball player, and I was I was good at baseball. How old are we talking here? Oh, I'm going six, seven years old, and I was very good at baseball. I was terrible in school. Uh, I was definitely a problem child. I was kicked out of a few high schools. What so, sort of stuff? Fighting um, <laughs> and uh, and not showing up, and and I was very early on. If I was into something. Uh, I was all in, and if I wasn't into something, you, I couldn't focus. Right. I just had no interest, and so I kind of had an on and off switch. But I think that on switch is what's always driven me. If I want something, I work extremely hard to get it. I think now I've matured a bit that you know life can't quite be an on off switch. And when you're a CEO, some of the stuff you'd like to turn off, you need to to deal with. So can we talk about hard work then, very briefly? People often say on this podcast, yeah, I work hard. Tell us what hard work looks like to you. Hard work for me, I'm now uh, 50 years old. I've been going, working since I was about probably 15, 16. Uh, I've been seven days a week, 12-hour days since then. Um, I'm uh, working on getting better at work life balance uh you know i'm I'm, i've missed birthdays and things holidays which is um in hindsight i wish if i could do that over again i I wouldn't but i don't think i'm the only ceo to tell that story that they've struggled with work-life balance but for me i'm up and at it 5 a.m and i'm routinely going to 10 p.m i travel 260 days a year um it's a way of life for me so you're right. Everybody says they work hard, but I know how hard I work, and I and I love it. I mean, it doesn't it doesn't feel like work for me. I can always make another call, and, and that's you know one of the issues that uh, you know my wife tries to help me with is um, you know having an off off button sometimes because uh, it can become unhealthy when you work as hard as as some people do as I do. So can you tell us a little bit about the unhealthy? element of that work ethic uh yeah you end up not being there for your your family and your kids as much as uh you you should be um you, you know you do get into a a habit of i got to do the next phone call but actually if you take out an hour to have dinner instead of eating it at your desk you know the world isn't going to come to an, an end so um I kind of operate that everything's urgent, but not everything's important. Uh, and so it's manifested itself in, in you know, missing too many birthdays and, and holidays and not taking vacations or being on vacation, but still being on, you know, my phone, uh, you know, during during the vacation. Now what I've done is learned to compromise where I'll, I'll set times when I'm on vacation where I'm off the phone and I'm allowed to be on the phone or I'll do it in the morning before everyone gets up and I'll kind of shut down during the day. And what I've found is um, when you have a great team around you, the world doesn't come to an end if you're off your phone for an hour or two. But it, it takes some discipline when you're kind of addicted to, to working. I'm interested also, though, in that link that you have here uh, with McLaren with mind in terms of mental health. And when you describe that, I'll be honest, it sounds exhausting, you know, and I appreciate that's probably not for everybody. But what are the mental health implications as well that you've found of having such a ferocious work ethic? 
Uh, stress, you, you know, I, I definitely um, physical health, right? I'm unfortunately not in the shape I'd like to to be in. I don't take time to work out. I'm eating in hotel rooms. I'm eating on planes. And so I think the biggest thing I've noticed is, you know, I'm not in the physical condition I'd like to be in. And then I find that when I do kind of get a moment, it's like, I'd rather lay down. I've run so hard than like the idea of going to a gym and pounding it out for two hours. Now COVID was good for that because I ended up just working on my treadmill all day. So that was, oh, yeah. that was good. But now I'm back into my, my, my bad habits. But I, I think for me, stress, um, but it's something that we, we kind of started off with being kind of self-critical. I know this is my weakness and not my only weakness, but a weakness. And I'm working a lot on trying to make it better. But here's a question for you then. It must be quite seductive in terms of the success that you've had. And you, you can clearly link your work ethic to really tangible rewards. Do you think if you'd have done anything differently, say, if you'd have had a more balanced family life or you'd have maybe taken more time out for yourself, you would have achieved the same success that you've had? You know, I, I find it hard to believe if I skipped that one day of travel or if I put the phone down for another hour that things would have been radically different. But I do think it's kind of a ways of working in an intensity. I'm not sure. I, I, I wouldn't kind of change what I've done. I'm, I'm happy with where we are and I've got a great family. So there's not been any uh, permanent damage. But if you saw your son taking on those same traits, what would your advice to him yeah, be? Yeah, I, I would definitely give him the advice of make sure you take some time off, take those breaks. Because So yeah, if I, if I would, would I do the same thing again? No, I, I would make those adjustments because I think I could land in the same place. But that's easy to say in hindsight. And my sons have seen this, and I think they've advised me to slow down at times. So I think hopefully while they've got great work ethic, they've seen the downside, if you'd like, of having uh, work be too intense. And I think they won't want to repeat that. It's interesting this for me because... I'm obviously at a different level to you, but I, I almost feel like I'm listening to myself talking here. But the thing is, I think what people have to understand is like, if you are excited by what you do and you're like an eternal optimist, I don't know whether you're the same, but every time an email comes in or a deal might be on the offing or a proposition, I think that's, this could be the most amazing thing. And often it doesn't happen, right? But it's that feeling that this is the one. So therefore it can't wait. You've got to deal with it now. And it is really exciting. And I think life can, you can get into the habit of being like that. And I think that it is exciting, isn't it? It's not for everyone, but actually your life is exciting. This excites you, the busyness, the phone going all the time, doing those deals. It's an addictive, it's an addictive life. But the question is, what's it about? Like, are we sort of chasing something? Are we missing something? Are we lacking something? It's yeah, it, uh, you know, it's definitely adrenaline. Yeah. Um, and you know, the art of the, the deal or whatever that, whether that's a sponsor deal or signing a driver or an employer, it's just, you know, constantly pushing forward. Uh, I am optimistic that things will work out. I'm pessimistic in that I kind of assume the worst and that's what drives me. It was interesting when I sold my, uh, sold my company. They had a, uh, a gentleman come in and interview me. They wanted to kind of, what's this guy like as a CEO? What are his hot buttons? How do we kind of 
manage him. And they said there's two types of successful people, those that uh, are the pursuit of victory and those that are the fear of failure. And I'm the fear of failure. So uh, I'm. that's where the paranoia comes in. And I think that's where the drive comes in. Um, I think it's probably the unhealthier of the two scenarios is to kind of live in this constant fear that something bad's going to happen. And that's what I've always used to motivate myself is I, I got to get ahead. I got to get further ahead because what if tomorrow's a, a bad day? So uh, that resonated with me when kind of the report came out and I was like, there's those two types of individuals. And that's definitely my intensity. Uh, but I think that that comes with another layer of stress than being that person who's pursuing the thrill of victory. So let's talk about that first big failure then in your racing driving career what did that do to you when you had to when that realization came that that wasn't going to be the pathway you were going to succeed yeah in? so I've, I've had um lots and lots of failures of various sizes right you kind of have them every every day um the, the racing one was the biggest because that's what i wanted to do is drive from McLaren, uh, race from McLaren. I mean, I'm happy where I've ended up, but it wasn't the the first part of the dream job was was being in a race suit on the uh, on the podium. And um, you know, I heard for ten years that I was really good at sponsorship and marketing and should maybe quit racing. And that that when you're in the middle of your racing and people are effectively saying you're better at this than that, that doesn't sit well with you. For me, it. It motivated me. Um, but over time, I came to realize the right. And I was on the track with people like Juan Pablo Montoya and Jos Verstappen, Max's father. And they were just doing stuff with race cars that I, I couldn't do. And you eventually, you, you don't want to believe it. So I think it probably took me longer to be self-critical. In a race car, there's so many other variables. While well, the car was in, wasn't that good, et cetera. And there was some truth to, to that. But then you do, after enough time, kind of go, yeah, it's not going to happen. And, and it was really the necessity to make a living that drove me getting into the business I got into as opposed to – I always had a passion for sponsorship and working with people, but it was more I got to make a living now. And that's how the business got started. So you created – just Marketing International. I remember when I arrived in Formula One as a presenter, everyone was like, if you need to speak to the people that do the deals in this sport, JMI are the people that, that you need to go and meet. So can you explain for people how you went about not just setting up a business, but being successful, being really successful? Yeah, it um, started, I was sponsored by TWA, the, the airline, and I was here my first five years of racing in the middle 90s, and uh, I got a deal to race back in the States, so I went to TWA and said, I'm going to leave, go back to the States, and they said, hey, the sponsorship's going great, can't you place it with someone in pit lane, you must know all the guys and gals and how the sport works, and I went, yeah, I could do that, and that's how the business got started, I actually placed it with Nigel Mansell's uh, Formula 3000 team. And that was kind of the first sponsorship I'd done for someone else. Then, because I understood how the sport worked and it's kind of the wild, wild west kind of still is, I'd built up all these relationships and contacts, people that I wanted to have sponsor me that I couldn't close. And it's because I wasn't you know, famous enough or in Formula One or in NASCAR. So I started going back to them and said, look, I, you know, you tell me what you're trying to get 
in business. And then let me marry you up with the right racing team, the right driver, the right series. And overnight, that just worked because there was very few people at that moment consulting the corporate side of the sport. And I knew how much power the corporate side of the sport has. How did you work that out then if other people hadn't managed um, to? I think everyone was working in their own self-interest, which was it's about my racing. So I'm trying to get money out of company ABC Hmm. where no one was then consulting. And you had all these companies that wanted to come into the sport, but they didn't know who to talk to. Is that the right person, the wrong person? Is that the right amount of money? What should I ask for? And so I was able to, in an authentic way, to be able to go to companies and say, look, I know who you should deal with, who you shouldn't deal with. I know what you should pay and how much kind of power you have as the check writer. So I effectively got companies to say, I've got X budget. Here's what I'm trying to do. And then I worked the pit lane and, and you, you know, the sport has such a thirst for sponsorship. I became very popular very quickly because yeah. I was the guy with kind of the, the corporate checkbooks. So I started the the business just registering downtown Indianapolis for 25 bucks out of a rental house um, with my girlfriend, who's now my my wife. She wasn't involved in the business, but she was there supporting me. And that's how the business got started. I never had a business plan. It wasn't intended to become a business. It was like, well, I'm going to just do deals and take a piece of the action to make a living. <clears throat> but then as it started to grow, I was like, well, I need people to help me. And that's how the business got started. So I learned how to run a business by just doing it. And then I've always had, and I have to this day, a lot of mentors. And I have an advisory team here at McLaren, which is something that I had at JMI, which was always trying to surround myself with people that were smarter than me, more experienced than me, asking advice. So I've I've always been a kind of sponge of information. There's two interesting things from your answer there that really jumped out me. One was that, t- that phrase you used about authenticity, people buying into you. But also what you were doing was translating two very different worlds mm-hmm. and being able to connect them. And that requires real listening skills. Would you tell us a little bit around, around that? Because again, when you mentioned this, t- this tribe of mentors you have, that's still about listening to question? others. I'm teasing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I think you do need to know how to listen and, and listen carefully and ask questions you you know don't kind of assume you you know if you didn't understand something ask ask again um and then really understanding what someone wants i found i found the best way to get something out of someone is to give them what they want not necessarily what you want to give them and i think um that's why i aligned on the kind of the corporate side was uh i can get you what you want. And um, so, so listening, communicating. And then I, I've always played the long game. I have no doubt in some situations I've left something on the table. But I think in the long run, I've won a lot more than I've lost by playing the long game. And I've seen people that are, you know, as soon as the business card changes or that CMO that was a, a sponsor has left, now they're unemployed, you kind of drop the relationship. I've stayed in touch because they're going to end up somewhere else. So I kind of want you a friend. You're a friend for a life, not you're a friend because you're writing me a check at the moment. And um, and then I've always felt leaving something on the table is okay if you play the 
the long game and that's how I've done all my relationships over the years. So you've managed to get the balance right between success and greed effectively. Yeah. And you've yeah. seen other people make those mistakes? Definitely. Definitely. And I think greed is short-term wins. And there's sometimes that you go, I think I left something on the table, but I think in the long run I've I've won a lot more because of that. And there is a balance. And I think um you know, it's like going over the limit on a race car. You want to be on the limit. Yeah. But if you go over the limit, you crash. And um, I think I've seen a lot of people be greedy and they kind of have a great five-year run, but they're not around in 10 years. So how do you avoid that then? Doing by what I think is 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 right and being happy enough and, and just knowing when to stop. And I think it's a bit of a an instinct thing and, and getting into a range where I'm happy. And so I'm, I'm good. Let's, let's, let's go and we'll grow it. And it's going to be long-term. And I, I know I'm going to get another bite at the apple or an upsell or a renewal, or you're going to help me out when I come to you. You know, I, I think people can sense when you're greedy and they still may do a deal with you because they want or need to do that deal, but you create some resentment. And I think that comes back and bites you. But there's an interesting dichotomy there because that requires patience as well. And yet you're in a fast-paced world where you've said the adrenaline of the deal gets you yeah. going. So again, would you tell us a little bit how you manage patience with the desire for action? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, patience is something that I think I've gotten better at uh, because if you do rush, you, you leave stuff on the table, not just economically, but you're maybe not as thoughtful. So I think I'm a lot more thoughtful now, but I also have the benefit of having great people around me. So I think the way I've taught myself more patience is to lean into the people that I'm working with, trust them, empower them, and kind of let them do their thing. And that's forced me to not be the sole decision maker. So I think I've, I've um, learned more patience by uh, leaning into to people. I mean, it is, you know, where I am now, everything is is team effort, right? We're a thousand people, we're a hundred plus people in the marketing department and I couldn't do it without them. And it was interesting. Someone once said to me, it was like, you know, when you have up to a hundred employees, you do 90% of the work and 10% is, is them. Then when you get up to a thousand employees, they do 90% of the work and 10% is you. And then if you get north of a thousand, it's like 90% them, 5% you, 5% luck. And there's, there's some, I think there's some truth to, yeah, yeah. To, to, to that. So I think my job now is to be the captain of this big boat. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping 
and 365-day returns. So can I ask then how you hire people, not just for the business, but also how do you choose those people who you have around you in your inner circle, on your advisory boards? What questions do you ask yourself and ask them? So do we like each other? You know, I think likability when you're working as hard as we're all working, because the leadership team that I have has the same work ethic as I do. So when you're working seven days a week, all hours of the day, you got to like who you're working with. So likability has always been very important to me. Transparency, communication, putting your hand up. And these are things that you pick up by instinct. And then, of course, a lot of referrals, you know, especially at the, at the higher levels. <clears throat> I do a lot of homework on the individuals, talk to their former bosses and coworkers and clients, whatever the case may be. Um, what I personally don't do is usually turn to the resume and see where they went to college because I didn't go to college. What's most important to me is kind of character work experience, work ethic, who do they know, how have they presented themselves, and then some small things. I, people spell my name wrong all the time. They do that. You really? Know, you don't, yeah, and well, to, me it's, to me, it's an intention to, I don't care how you spell my name, it's an intention to detail, right? I'm, we're, we're very much in the detail business, and you'd be shocked how many people write to me to apply for a job and they get my name wrong. And it's yeah. like, if you don't- Is that an instant no? It's a total no. It doesn't even get, it's like done. Um, <laughs> so as a Damien with an A, I'm a, the- You know, yeah, and, and it's amazing because if you send me an email, my name's in it. So you've spelt my name right in the email, but you still got it <laughs> yeah. Z-A-C or Z-A-C-H or Z-A-C-K. Um, but to me, that's an attention to, 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 to detail. And it's like, if you can't get that right- well, it reminds me, there's a famous story that's attributed about Walt Disney that when he used to bring people into his business, he'd take them for lunch beforehand and he'd look to see whether they'd put salt and pepper on the food before they'd taste it. Because yeah. his idea was they're not open to new experiences. They're already just stuck in old habits. It's funny. I think we all have our own little pet peeves. Mine is obviously spelling of the name, uh, dating documents, because I live off of briefs. And everyone does lots of drafts. And so I'll print out, stick them in the briefcase, go to read them on a plane, and then they're not dated. And it's like, well, I'm not sure which ones. So that drives me nuts. So everyone in here, peers, date the documents. Uh, number pages. You know, you're going through a presentation. Well, I've got a comment on page. What's the page after the page after the page? It'd be a lot easier if it just said page 12. Yeah. And then my other one, and this just leads to miscommunication, is ASAP. You know, calendars say Monday at 3 o'clock mm. or Tuesday at 2. There is no ASAP in a calendar. Yeah. And I think that leads to miscommunication. Because if I said to you, I'd like it ASAP, What's do, do I mean in an hour? Do I mean in a week? It leads to, so it's much easier for me to say, I need that by Monday, three o'clock. So those are my few operational pet peeves that lead to problems, right? If you're reading two documents and you're reading the wrong one and you react to it. So they're, they're small things, but big things. So I love that focus on removing ambiguity from your world around you. So if anyone was to come into your team and be part of your inner circle, what are the we got the the three non-negotiables that you say these are the these are the things that I'm not prepared to compromise on good communications um 
responding. So it drives me nuts. I probably get 300 emails a day and I respond to each one. Even if it is, I'll get back to you next Monday. I see people that let things sit. I was like, well, I don't have an answer yet. I was like, well, just go back to the person and say, I don't have an answer. You'll have, uh, I get so many notes um, from people go, it's like, I sent a note, but no one responded. And then I'll go to the person. It's like, well, I haven't responded because I don't have an answer. It's like, yeah, but they don't know if you got the email, when they're going to hear from it. Wouldn't it be so much easier to just respond with, I'll come back to you next week or in two weeks or whatever. So good communications, total honesty. And, you know, of course, everybody says that, right? There's trust, there's honesty, there's work ethic, right? The kind of standard here. But when I mean honesty, it's like own what you've done. If you don't know it, just say you don't know it. I, I always say in your mistakes are, are fine. Don't make the same one twice. Because you learn from mistakes. I mean, as Nicky Lauda once said, he learned more from losing than he did winning. And I, I kind of I understand that. But you got to own them. Uh, don't make stupid mistakes. But mistakes are okay. But own them. And then learn from them. And then share them. Uh, so kind of sitting in if there's something that's gone wrong and no one puts up their hand, that's a, that's a non-starter. Because we can work with mistakes. We can learn from mistakes. But not if you're not going to bring them forward. And talking about learning from things, what did you learn on reflection from the Daniel Ricardo situation where you had a driver who wasn't necessarily performing in the way that he or other people would have liked? And is there anything that you would have done differently if you could live that situation all over again? Yeah, I think um, it's an interesting one. I mean, he came in having won seven Grand Prix and was, you know, the hottest driver that you, you could get. And I think uh, we kind of maybe assumed, and I think kind of rightfully so, that he was going to pick up where he left off. I think my one learning there would really just be con contractual. I don't think there's anything we could have done differently for him as a driver. Like I'm sitting here right now thinking, I don't think we could have done something differently to make him more competitive. We, we tried all that. I think we've had to end the relationship early. We've had to write a big check, um, which is fine because that's the deal that we cut. I think uh, what I'll do different next time is maybe have some more performance protections for us and not just assume that a great driver is going to always be great. I think that's the one one learning is more of a contractual one, but it's a, but it's a big one. And what can we learn? Because for, for people that watch Formula One, it's just confusing for someone to be so quick and then and then to struggle as he did. What can you tell us that we can learn from so we can understand the situation better? Yeah, it's interesting. We're, we're not sure. He's not sure. You know, we've, we've tried changing cars and offering to change people, and it's been over two seasons, two different cars. So we thought year one, maybe it just didn't gel with the car. So let's see what will happen in year two. It's a totally different car. But we got to the point where our only strategy was hope, and I think hope's not a great strategy. So, you know, it's a great mystery. We saw in Monza, it's in there. I mean, there's no doubt the guy did not win eight Grand Prix by, by accident. Um, we just weren't able to unlock it together. And Lando's, you know, driving great and getting the car to perform. So I don't think there's anything sitting here that we would have done differently or could have seen or should have known. I think the only thing is just from a business standpoint, we could have contractually kind of 
what if it doesn't work? And I think we went into it so excited and, and not really thinking of a downside scenario that I think we, um, uh, but you also don't know if you would have got those contractual protections. I sitting here now, I can say, well, I wish I would have had this in the contract, but who knows whether he would have agreed to it. But he also might have because he would have been going, well, that's never going to happen. So I'll, I'll, I'll agree to things in contracts. You've obviously been thinking it over in your head. Yeah, like, well, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I know you've got to go. Um, but the, I think the final question um, is, you've, it's been a fascinating conversation, you know, full of advice for people, but also full of sort of self-confidence and understanding and knowledge about the world. Where does self-doubt sit in your planet? I think it's the, the paranoia, um, the, the fear of failing. I don't, I don't have a lot of doubt. What I know is what I don't know, and I'm not afraid to go ask. So when I doubt, I, I, I don't doubt I can do something because I'm confident that if I don't know how to do something, I'm very confident I know someone who, who does. So, so therefore, I, I don't ever like, ooh, how am I going to do this? It's like, well, I've got this problem. I don't know much about it, but I'm going to call this person on my advisory board or I'm going to call a board member or I'm going to call my chairman. So I'm not uncomfortable with not knowing everything. I kind of thrive on that. And I, I think one of the strengths is knowing what you don't know. Um, and so I don't have a lot of self-doubt because I got a good Rolodex. That's great. And finally, your golden rule that you'd like to leave people with, your one message for people, some of whom have found it, some of whom are looking for it, but your final message for living a high-performance life. Yeah, I think uh, working hard is a given. You can always work smarter and, and, and trying to drive efficiency and cram more. Part. We, we've only got 24 hours, whether you're president of the United States or you or me. Or, so it's about how do you get more productivity out of that 24 hours, and that's about working smarter and you become working smarter by being self-critical and knowing that you can always do better and then that drives efficiency brilliant thanks for your time my pleasure Thank thanks for having me damien jake well that was you know what I, I you sort of get the energy from that conversation that zach obviously took into jmi obviously brings to mclaren as well you know that clarity of thought the speed of thought the confidence in the way he talks i liked it yeah even the maximizing of his time with us that we knew that he squeezed us into a very busy schedule but he's come in and he was on message on point right away that i can get an insight into what his team meetings must be like what stood out for you attention to detail I love that. I love these pet peeves. I know I sort of joked when he said about spelling names wrong, but I do think it's a sign of respect. I do think that when people don't take the trouble just to work it out and almost phone it in, um, it often is a lack of respect. And I think the fact that he's hot on that, it can sound egotistical, but I actually think it's about respect for other people as well and making sure that everybody, you know the name, you know who they are. And tell me where you sit on this hard work conversation, because I always think we have to be really careful not to come on this podcast and say, work 24-7 and never have a day off, put work above family, all of those things. And it was great that you, you know, you mentioned to Zach that McLaren have got this great relationship with mine, the mental yeah. health charity. But let's be clear, right, for him, it works. He didn't sort of, you know, break down saying, actually, this pushes me to my limits and I can't cope. He, this works for him. So how do people who can't and don't want to operate like that still get their own version of high performance do you think 
Yeah, it's a brilliant question. I actually think you're better qualified to answer it than I am because I think you've got that really nice balance. I think you, you're good at finding that sweet spot. I think my view is that I'd quote Eddie Jones, what he told us, that it's not for everybody. Mm. So the, so we're not advocating that you copy Zach's work ethic of seven days a week, 10 hour days, things like that. I think it's about understanding what, the, like where you want to allocate your hard work. Hard work might be spending your time with your family and that can be just as rewarding as doing it in the workplace. So viewing it almost like as a, as a pie and making sure that it's, there's proportions that are allocated elsewhere. And I think, you know, from my perspective, it is about making sure that you've got people in your life that give you really honest feedback. And so not many people walk away from presenting Formula One for the yep. BBC, right? But then not many people have their wife say the words, it's me or the job. Wow. There aren't many people that walk away from presenting Premier League football. But again, not many people have a wife that says, you do realise your children are seven and nine, you've never been around on a Saturday. Is that yeah. ever going to change? So I think that I have to have sort of Harriet keep in check almost. Yep. So let's say if high performance gets out of hand, she'll be the first one to say, do you really think that that podcast or high performance needs that amount of time? What about us? Don't forget about us. And I think that you have to listen to those people. That's all, For me, that's like the alarm bell moment. I can still be checking in my own head going, yeah, I'm quite busy or I'd be like, nice to be around on Saturdays. I wish I didn't travel as much. But almost as soon as it, Harriet says it, because she knows how much I yeah, love yeah. it and I embrace it and get a thrill from it, I think she wouldn't say it until in her mind we're reaching that tipping point, you know? Yeah, but I think, that's, I think that goes back to the point that Zach spoke about, about having that lack of ambiguity in your life that for you, your priority is Harriet and the children and then everything else comes underneath that. And I think you're always explicit around that. So I think the fact that you're clear, there's no ambiguity in your world that high performance isn't more important than, mm. uh, than your family time. And I think that then allows you to make decisions with clarity as well. And I also like what he said about, you know, Daniel Ricciardo leaving the team at, at the end of the season. You know, he felt like they did everything they could. And I think that's one of the real challenges in business and in sport is when you no longer sort of have an answer or a reason or an excuse, that's when you really sometimes have to make the tough calls, don't you? Yeah, definitely. I think when he was saying that, I was reminded of that old anecdote of when somebody cuts you up driving, you attribute it to their personality, that they're a dick. But when you do it, it's because there's a reason. I'm in a rush, I'm in a hurry. And I think it's something for a leader, not just to attribute it to it's Daniel's fault that he's not delivered. They've looked at themselves before they've started to point the finger and said, have we done everything we can to give him the best opportunity? And I think that then smacks of a healthy culture where everybody knows that they're free to fail, like he said, as long as they're willing to learn from it and then get smarter next time. It was really good. It was just too short for me. I, I reckon in a year we need to come back and do it longer. Yeah, but I love the energy of it. So we yeah. packed in enough wisdom there to, for... You know what, That's the, anyone listening to this, parent, teacher, businessman, CEO, entrepreneur, wannabe racing driver, listen to his energy and listen to the way yeah. that he kind of c came in and came out of the room. And I think 
you get a good understanding of how he's done as much as he has. Yeah, it was a privilege. Brilliant. Look, Damien, thank you so much for your company as always. A big thanks to the professor. Everyone needs a professor in their life. Thanks as well to Finn, to Will, to Gemma, to Eve, to Hannah, to Zach, of course, at McLaren and the whole team at McLaren. Uh, we spoke with Lando Norris a few months ago. Don't forget you can hear that chat by going into the High Performance Archives. And now we get to speak to the boss and who knows, maybe in a, a few months' time, we might get to speak to the latest driver to join the team. But thank you very much for coming to another conversation of high performance and we'll see you very soon for plenty more. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.